Gospel of Luke. We are studying through the Gospel of Luke, and our studies take us to chapter 9 this morning, and we're going to look at verses 37 through 45. Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 45. Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. Suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, teacher, I implore you, look on my son for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And as he was still coming, the demon threw him down and convulsed him. Then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at all the things which Jesus did, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink down into your ears. For the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. But they did not understand this saying, and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Let's pray this morning. Father, we always thank you for your word ahead of time. It's uh, powerful, living, it discerns our hearts, and we want all of that work to take place this morning. More than we could ever ask or even think, would you do that in our midst today? Make us straight, Lord. Keep us walking in a path that's following you so that we can experience all of those things that you promised us, grace and mercy in abundance. Open up our spiritual hearing and understanding to these words. May they refresh and encourage us on our pilgrim journey through this life while we await the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. You've played Name That Tune. Someone plays or hums a note or two from a familiar song, and you try to guess the name of the song. Radio stations do it all the time as contests. There have been several TV shows over the years. I can name that tune in one note. Ever, how many of you have ever even know what I'm talking about at all? Yeah, a couple of you old-timers. If you have an iPod, the game is loaded on it as software, only it goes by the name Music Quiz. Now how many of you know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, right on. How many of you know what an iPod is? Okay, well. Jesus played Name That Tune with his disciples and with the crowd at the bottom of the mountain. You and I don't immediately pick up on it because we're not first century Jews. It's in his comments in verse 41. Jesus said, O faithless and perverse generation... It was more than a reproof for their lack of faith. It was like saying, can you name that tune in five words? Because it was a line from a song, a song every Jew learned as a child. It was first sung by Moses, and it's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 32. Back in Moses' day, the Jews were about to enter the promised land. God wanted to warn them about the peril of following after the other gods that they would encounter among the pagan peoples. He wanted them to understand that idolatry in any form was far from harmless. Behind every idol was a demon. 
So God gave Moses a song and told him to perform it for the people. When Jesus spoke the words of Moses' song, every Jew present would have thought of God's warning. It was a direct quote from Deuteronomy 32.5. Another passage, also using the words perverse generation, reads like this. They provoked him to jealousy with foreign gods, with abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons, not to God, to gods they did not know, to new gods, new arrivals that your fathers did not fear. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God who fathered you. And when the Lord saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom there is no faith. The Jews were God's children, his sons and daughters. Following after other gods would involve them with demons, and it would cause them to become a perverse generation. With that in mind, this confrontation with the demon-possessed boy takes on a deeper significance. It becomes an object lesson. This man's son was twisted and convulsed by demons. God's sons, the Jews, were twisted and convulsed by following other gods, idols whose ultimate source was demons. God was showing the nation what they had become. They had become like the gods they followed in their idolatry rather than becoming like God himself they didn't see it it wasn't as obvious as a demon possessed boy but it was perhaps far more serious we'll organize our thoughts around two points number one look at what you become like when you follow other gods and number two look who you become like when you follow god first of all in verses 37 through 41 look at what you become like when you follow other gods you've seen people who start looking like their dogs haven't you It can be pretty comical, as long as it's not you, and it's not a bulldog. Some really pretty dogs, and then there's a whole bunch of really ugly dogs. Something similar is true of idols. Psalm 115, verse 8, describes idols, and it says, They are the work of men's hands, and then it says, They that make them are like unto them. An idol doesn't have to be a statue or an image. It can be an idea. It can be a pursuit like power or position or possessions. You become like your idol in that it influences your daily decisions and direction. And you can begin to look like your idol. When I was a businessman, the goal among my peers was power and position and especially possessions. And so, for example, you would dress appropriately. You looked like a person who had uh, acquired all of those things or achieved all of those things. You read books like Dress for Success. Now, we laugh at that, but people read these. Dress for Success. How to dress for success. How to win friends and intimidate people. You took classes like Verbal Advantage. And and you did everything you could in order to come across as the thing that you were trying to achieve. 
you looked like money and success in your outward appearance. The Jewish leaders in the first century were concerned with their position and power, more so than with the kingdom of God. We're going to see that when we get to the trials of Jesus Christ and their desire to have him killed and removed from the scene so that they might continue in their positions and with their power. They had sunk to the level of idolatry. The Orthodox Jews who practiced extreme righteousness were walking around in pride rather than in humility following God. But that would be a great first century reality television show. Extreme righteousness. And every week they could get different Pharisees and follow them around in their extreme righteousness. You know, there were some Pharisees who any, they, they actually, and this is historical, they, they were not in the first century, but later on they were called the bruised and bleeding Pharisees because whenever they saw a woman coming towards them, they would close their eyes so as not to lust after the woman. And they, of course, would keep walking and they would run into things. And they would be bruised and bleeding, and by the end of the day, they'd be wiped out, and people would say, man, look at the righteousness. Look at that badge. Man, what a shiner. Yeah, I closed my eyes to keep myself from sinning. And so we could have this extreme righteousness show going on. Okay. I thought it was funny. These are the kinds of things I think about. Anyway, they were walking around in their pride rather than in humility following God. It, too, was a form of idolatry. The nation as a whole was in sad shape, we would say, not heeding the warnings of Moses' song. J. Vernon McGee, commenting on Deuteronomy chapter 32, the song of Moses, said it was, it was sort of like a national anthem for Israel. It definitely was a song that every Jewish person knew and would sing from time to time. The boy at the foot of the mountain was demon-possessed, and Jesus would deliver him. But he also served as a powerful object lesson. He represented Israel as God's dear son, now twisted and contorted, now a perverse generation. And so verse 37. Now it happened on the next day when they had come down from the mountain that a great multitude met him. If you were here for our last study or if you were reading ahead, you see that Jesus was up on the mountain with Peter, John, and James the mountain called that of transfiguration where his glory shone through. Then he comes down from the mountain and a great multitude meets him. There are always going to be needs to be met. Always multitudes needing ministry. Time on the mountain away from the needs is where you acquire the resources you need to serve in the lowlands of life. Notice it's not just a need to get away and to get refreshed by going on vacation. Jesus spent his time in prayer. I have nothing against vacations or hobbies and things like that. Don't get me wrong. But when it comes to your Christian walk, it's not diversion that you need, but devotions. Jesus didn't get all tired and frustrated and say, man, can't we just go water skiing on the Sea of Galilee? Just forget all this ministry stuff for a while and just, you know, get a jet ski and leave our Bibles at home. Jesus said, I need to go spend time with my father. I need a deeper devotional life with my father in heaven. Peter, John, James, why don't you come with me? We'll spend the night in prayer. What kind of rest is that? It's 
the kind of rest that a Christian needs if they're going to meet any needs. People get burned out not because they didn't go on vacation, but because they went on vacation without their Bible or because they're not spending time in devotion with the Lord. Always going to be a lot of needs to be met. Verse 38, suddenly a man from the multitude cried out saying, Teacher, I implore you, look on my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him and suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and it departs from him with great difficulty, bruising him. Let me just mention for a moment, anybody that's ever had a sick child, I mean, what wouldn't you give to just be sick in their place? And some of you have had extremely sick children and probably some of you have had children that have died and gone home to be with the Lord. Imagine having a demon-possessed child. Now, I know some of you think around two years old. That all your, but I'm serious about having a demon-possessed child in a culture like this in the first century. What a terrible, terrible agony of heart this must be. The world is an evil place. All questions about why God allows this kind of suffering trace back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve represented all their future offspring when they exercised free will to rebel against God. Sin and death entered God's creation and Satan became its temporary overlord. All blame goes to sin and self. probably the most often repeated question in the history of the world, I think, is why God? Why God would you allow this? Why is God allowed? Why didn't God do something if there's a God? All that category of questioning about God. And the answer is God has done something about it. God said, look, I'm going to give you free will. Do whatever you want. There's just one little rule that you have to follow. You can have the whole, you know, dominion over all creation. We can have perfect fellowship, etc., etc. Or you can die. Take your choice. Oh, we want to die because we want to be like God. It's, there's the fault. And then God says, okay, I have a plan for that. I am going to come myself into your creation. And I'm going to die in your place. I'm going to deal with that sin so that we can restore and redeem the original creation. And, and it's, it's like, it's almost, and I mean this in the right way, it's, it's like a blasphemy to ask, why does God allow evil? You know, because you have to have free will for there to be love. And Adam and Eve sinned. And God's done everything possible to bring mankind back to himself. And all of our suffering is a light affliction. It lasts for a moment for the glory that is awaiting us. Now, Jesus had been up on the mountain, as I said, with Peter, John, and James. The other nine disciples ought to have dealt with this case. It was a common case of demon possession. (laughs) After all, now see, you laugh, but Jesus had recently sent his disciples on a mission, and he gave them power and authority over demons and disease. And the demons obeyed them. And so verse 40, the man says, So I implored your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Now, curious, obviously, why could they not cast it out? Jesus answers it in another gospel account by saying, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. On the simplest level, Jesus was telling them that they must maintain their ministry. 
They had gone up the mountain to pray. It was in prayer and by fasting that Jesus maintained his ministry. The nine below had not prayed and they had not fasted. I know that because in one of the gospel accounts, you're told that they were busy arguing and disputing with some of the Jewish scribes, probably over some doctrinal dispute. They were distracted by people who just wanted to argue rather than simply ministering to the people who had great needs. And and this is always a danger in the Christian life. There's always a danger of, of becoming argumentative. Now, don't get me wrong. There is a place for what scholars call apologetics, which is defending the faith. And there's certainly a place for Bible doctrine. You know, we're, we love Bible doctrine and teaching and all of that. Don't get me wrong. But there are people who just want to argue with you about their position, about some small area uh, you know, of, of, of doctrine that, that they have elevated into some kind of mushroom cloud that is the most important thing in their life. There are lots of areas that Christians can agree to disagree on. And for the most part, we, we argue in those areas. Sadly, some of the areas that we shouldn't agree to disagree on, we say, oh, okay, you know, maybe... You think Jesus is God, I don't. What's the big deal? And we're, you know, we're starting to embrace these different groups that are formerly cults. And so we want to be careful about this. But the disciples, they got into arguing with the scribes uh, rather than meeting the needs of the people, which would have solved the argument. And so that's what they were doing instead of praying and fasting. And so now we come to the heart of the episode. Then Jesus answered and said, verse 41, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. When the books of the Bible were originally written, there were no such things as chapters and verses. You know that, right? Each book was written without any break from beginning to end and no numbers along the side and no marginal notes. It didn't look anything like your Bible. The chapter and verse divisions were added to the Bible for the sake of convenience. A man named Stephen Langton divided the Bible into chapters in the year 1227 A.D. Langton was a professor at the University of Paris. Later, he became the Archbishop of Canterbury. Robert Stevens, a French printer, divided the verses for his Greek New Testament It was published in 1551. The first entire Bible in which these chapter and verse divisions were used was Stephen's edition of the Latin Vulgate in 1555. The first English New Testament to have both chapter and verse divisions was the Geneva Bible in the year 1560. In the first century, if you wanted to refer your audience to a particular scripture, you would quote from it. When Jesus spoke or maybe even sung the five words, O faithless and perverse generation, everyone knew he was referring to the song of Moses from Deuteronomy. Now this this helps us a great deal in a secondary area that I want to mention quickly. These words of Jesus seem extremely harsh. You know, as if he was um, irritated, angry, 
upset, losing it a little bit. And, and I've even heard people talk about, well, Jesus in his humanity, he was, you know, he'd been up all night praying and he just couldn't take it anymore. Ooh, oh man. I think he might have even sung these words because they were a song. He might have looked at the situation and said, oh, faithless and perverse generation. Thank you very much. Thank you. Which is the actual tune, by the way. I looked it up on the Internet. But anyway, he might have because this was a song. And, and this is how you told people what was going on. You remember when we did our Easter studies? When we talked about Jesus on the cross. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And there's mountains of books written about God forsaking Jesus and turning his back on the sun and the sin and all of that. Or he was just quoting from Psalm 22 and saying, hey, why don't you guys go read Psalm 22 where it predicts my death in detail and you'll know what's happening. And so that's what Jesus was doing. He was saying, okay, demon-possessed boy, disciples can't help, generation of Jews, oh, faithless and perverse generation. Let's, let's remember the song of Moses, guys. Now the words, how long shall I be with you and bear with you are not part of that song. But God did say, how long shall I bear with this evil congregation in the 14th chapter of Numbers when the Exodus generation of Jews refused to enter the promised land. And so it's possible that that was another quote. And so the Jews, they're watching this scene and they're thinking, okay, song of Moses, I know what that's all about. And Jews from the Exodus generation refusing to go into the promised land. If you put all of that together, the quotes seem to be saying something like this. His generation was as faithless as the Exodus generation. And just as the Exodus generation refused to enter the promised land, so this generation of Jews would refuse to enter the kingdom on earth. They would reject Jesus as their Messiah. And then if you read the rest of the song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32... It tells of God disciplining his wayward son Israel at the hands of a foreign power. In that context, that would be Rome, which in 70 AD destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, scattering the Jews all over the world where they remained dispersed until this century, May 14th of 1948, when they recaptured or regained their land. This demon-possessed boy is very much an object lesson. If they wanted to know what they looked like spiritually to God, then take a look at this twisted, contorted, perverse, only son of his father. It had to sting. And so Jesus isn't irritated. He's not upset. It's not that he didn't get any coffee that morning. You know, It's not that he's a morning person or not or anything like that. Jesus is analyzing the situation. He's using it as a teaching tool. He's saying, here's what's really going on, guys. I want you to see this. And it's, yes, it's a rebuke, but it's a far more serious rebuke than just to think you don't have any faith. I mean, it's, it's saying, you guys, you guys are in the Song of Moses right now, and you're on, your, you're on your way to judgment if you don't repent. You don't have to be a demon-possessed boy to be dominated by deceptions. You and I have personally experienced or seen in the lives of others the results of following after other gods. Whether it's the typical idols like drugs or alcohol or sex, or whether it's more acceptable idols like power or position or possessions, too many people have become dominated by their pursuits. 
They begin to resemble their idols and are eventually ruined. I mean, look at the person who's a hardcore drunk. They begin to resemble their idol in the sense that it ruins their life. It takes over and they're not able to really function. But the same is true of the person climbing the corporate ladder whose whose only focus is power and position and prosperity. Only it's more acceptable outwardly. Society is into that. But it's just as ruinous inwardly and spiritually. The underlying spiritual principle is this. You become like your gods or you can become more like God. And so in verses 42 through 45, look at who you become like when you follow God. We left the young boy demon-possessed, and I know you're worried about him. So did Jesus worry about him for just a moment, though he left him demon-possessed in order to teach the people the important lessons we've just discussed? You'd think the Lord would have immediately delivered this boy, rushed into the confrontation. He didn't. And I just want to say this in passing, we should never give in to a sense of urgency unless we know that it's from the Lord. There are times when, oh, you've got to come, you've got to do this right now, this has to happen right now, my whole life is falling apart. And we have a tendency to feel guilty if we don't rush into that fray. Let's pray. Let's seek the Lord, maybe even momentarily. Lord, is this what you want me to do? Is this the way that, is this how you're going to deliver this person? A lot of times, you know, as a church, you're confronted with lots of needs, and we really do desire to meet people's needs, but most people have distilled their needs to money. If you'll just give me money, I'll be okay. And so can you give me money? And we start to talk to people about, well, can we sit down and talk? Can can we have some of the deacons call you? No. No telephone. Oh. Any place we can get in touch with you? No. I'm like a phantom. (laughs) I'm here and then I'm gone. You can give me money right now or never. Uh, You know, we'd really... And, and, it, and it escalates, you know, and we've had people slam the door, walk away. You call yourself a church. We really want to help people more than they want to be helped because all they want is money. Now, we don't, I don't know what they're going to do with that money. I don't even know if they need any money. And so we try not to respond to their sense of urgency. There's a, one of the famous ones is I'm trying to get to my grandpa's funeral okay where'd your grandpa died uh flagstaff okay what's the name of the funeral home uh gee i don't know just so you're just going to hit the funeral homes when you get there just one right after the other until you find and 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 you try and get some detail yeah okay give me some information we'll take you down and put you on the train to flags no i just need the money Nobody's dead. You, you know, I, I mean, and, and so it's really difficult. Now, we do help a lot of people. Don't get me wrong. We're not trying to not help people. But we're not into this urgency that people have all the time. Because oftentimes God has a lesson that he wants to teach. He has something that he wants to do. So don't become uh, one that gives into a sense of urgency until the Lord tells you what to do. Verse 42, and as he was still coming... 
The demon threw him down and convulsed him. And then Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. The other accounts go into more detail. Luke kept it simple. Don't become overly fascinated with the demonic or with your power and authority over demons. Just maintain your ministry. There are, you know, Christians who really, for some reason, they gravitate towards fascination with things that are demonic. And it's not because they have a gift of the discernment of spirits or, or, or you know, exorcism or anything like that. It's just, they, there's just something about it that is fascinating. Just ignore the demonic world. Just, there's, if you knew what was going on there, it would freak you out. You wouldn't even get out of bed probably. So just leave it alone. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. If you ever have to confront a demon, God's given you power and authority over it. You don't need to know his name. You don't need to know chants and concoctions and things like that. You don't even have to see the exorcist two, you know, uh, to figure out what really went wrong in exorcist one. I think the thing that freaked me out the most about the exorcist is that the priest died. I mean, if you're at the time I was Roman Catholic and this was a power, I mean, this priest, he was like, let's go, let's get it on. I'm going to get it on with the devil and I'm going to cast him out like I've done before. And then he dies. What hope did I have? I mean, I, I, I was, I might as well just kill myself. Oh no, I can't do that. That's a mortal sin. So man, you're, you're stuck. If the priest can't cast out a demon, you're stuck. And then the other priest, the young priest, he doesn't even believe in demons until he got vomited on. I mean, you know, and so, I mean, it's a, it's a bad situation dealing with this. So just let it go, maintain your ministry and God will cover for you. Verse 43, and they were all amazed at the majesty of God. But while everyone marveled at the things which Jesus did, he said this to his disciples, let these words sink down into your ears for the son of man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. Now, Jesus here seems like a cosmic killjoy with these comments, but that's not true either. They are the perfect summary of this object lesson. We just saw that Israel was a faithless generation that would reject the Messiah. And that's exactly what would occur as Jesus would be betrayed into the hands of men by the Jewish leaders and be crucified. Verse 45, but they did not understand this saying and it was hidden from them so that they did not perceive it and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Not only didn't they understand, but it was hidden from them. Spiritual truth can be like a treasure hunt or a mining expedition. You need to dig for it. You know, we get all troubled. Oh, God hid the truth from them. Well, sure, because they needed to dig for it. They needed to go after it. How bad did they want to know the truth? And, you know, I mean, I don't know the history as well as I should. But, I mean, when people came to California in the gold rush, I mean, gold wasn't just laying on the ground. They had to find it. They had to pan for it or dig for it. And a lot of them died trying. The Bible can be like that. You need to want to find the treasure that's in God's Word. Set up a mining camp. And so I'm going I'm to camp out on John 3.16 until I really understand it. I'm going to dig deep into it. Put on my mining cap and my little light and hang out there. <laughs> All right. Not only that, they were afraid to ask him. Now that tells us they could have asked him, but they didn't. Maybe they didn't want to appear dull or dumb by asking stupid questions. Let's not be like that. Ask the Lord to show you those things in his word and then approach it as a treasure hunt. Now I want to return to and focus on a word in verse 43. 
It's the word majesty where it says they were all amazed at the majesty of God. It's the same word that's used to describe Jesus' glory that was revealed on the mountain when he was transfigured and shone brightly with the glory of God. Same word. On the mountain, revealing the glory of God. Now in the lowlands, still revealing the glory of God. Here's the point. Peter, John, and James had seen Jesus revealed in his majesty when the appearance of his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. But everyone could see that same glory in Jesus' words and deeds without him shining outwardly in a transfiguration. God's glory, God's majesty is revealed through ministry for all to see. It is seen. Every time someone is delivered from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light by receiving Jesus as their savior. It is seen in lives that were once twisted and crooked and perverse lives like many of yours, but that were made straight by following the Lord. It is seen in families that are restored and in lives that are rebuilt. Ultimately, God's glory and majesty is seen in you. Matthew 5:16 says, "Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven." Your good works reveal God's glory every bit as much as Jesus shining with radiant light on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, Exodus chapter 34 tells you that Moses' face glowed from being in the presence of God and that he put a veil over his face so that the people wouldn't see his glory fading away. It's like one of those glow-in-the-dark figures. Glow in the, I had a glow-in-the-dark Jesus when I was a boy. Turn the light off and he would glow up there. It freaked me out, but I knew better than to say anything to my folks. And then he would fade away and I'd finally be able to go to sleep. Moses glowed in the pre- and then he faded out and he covered his face so that they wouldn't see the fading of the glory. But... Today, you and I possess, the Bible says, an unfading glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. We all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as by the Spirit of God. Follow God and you will become more and more like Jesus. And that glory that was his and is his will be revealed in you and through you as you do your good works. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for these words, these words of encouragement in the, in the midst of a pretty stern rebuke to Israel as your son who was perverse and crooked. And yet, Lord, even in that song of Moses, there is... Uh, a prophecy of restoration and there's the understanding that every son that you love you discipline and bring back Lord and so, and so we thank you for your love and grace for ourselves Lord we pray that we would um, reflect your glory as we would just go about maintaining our ministry and doing those things that you have called us to do thank you for your grace Lord thank you for your mercy we pray in Jesus name Amen. All right, let's stand together. Some of our guys will be up front to pray with you as we sing this final chorus. And so if you're here this morning with any kind of a need, uh, 
you just want to share a word of prayer with us, please come forward and do it. You can come now as we sing and then afterwards as well. God bless you and keep you. Amen.
Amen. God bless you today.